Hi, and welcome to Your Mama with your host, Sarah Evans. Today, I am happy to have a guest with me, uh, and we're going to talk about a really important topic. Her name is Kelly Wickhamhurst. You might know her as Mocha Mama, and she is here to share with us what families of color, people of color who have kids in school, um, tips and resources that they need to know. She's got a really powerful story of something that happened in her school district, but says it is universal, just happening all over. And just, we both feel something very important that parents need to know. So Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. So I wanted you to tell the folks listening, give them a background uh, about the story that I recently read that you had contributed to another blog. Um, I just think it is so important and it's so great in your own words. I would love to. Um, It's a story that is unfortunately repeated constantly. And it was just such a, um, this one happened to hit me a little bit harder than most of them do. And I think it's because issues of race have just continued to come up um, in our nation. It continues to be a topic of conversation. And what I'm really hopeful about is that in the future, it moves from being a conversation to being a movement to being um, some action plans that we can do. But uh, within the the span of uh, about two weeks in May, I had two students and we disciplined them very differently. And um, it was such a marked difference. And of course, I, I, I pushed back on it. I'm the only black administrator in my building and I have in a middle school uh, where I work and there's only one black teacher. However, our student population is about 50% white and 50% students of color. So um, the, the population certainly uh, speaks to, um, to a lot of other issues. There's a lot to unpack there. One student uh, who's white who um, brought drugs to school and was, was summarily um, suspended, as, as you would do with any student in that situation. Um, when he returned to school, we gave him all kinds of supports, and we put him on our problem-solving team, which is just a place where we sort of ask um, teachers and, and other team members to come up with interventions to help a student. And we also um, tried to get him some special education services at one point. He spoke with our school social worker, and um, he actually had some minutes with me where we tried to get him back on track with his grades and homework. The following week, we had another student, and um, his uh, discipline involved him skipping a day of school. And once uh, we found him, because he was gone all day, and his mother had come into the school to ask us to please help find him, and it was, uh, it was you know, quite frightening because this is not a student. This was some risky behavior for him, and he uh, was at school every day. This was the first day he'd ever missed in his three years. And when he returned to school, I was actually gone. And so when I came back the following day, I saw him and said, you know, hey, you and I are going to talk about this. I'm really worried. And I went to my administrative meeting where they told me that yesterday, the day before, they had the police officer talk to him, which to me seems like a very odd response to a student um, who's truant. And I voiced some concern about that and got a lot of pushback. And um, when I said, you know, this, this really isn't, the best plan in place for him. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but you know, when we call police on black people these days, sometimes it ends up in death. So this is a really situation. And, uh, I got even more pushback because of course, then I made it a racist thing, um, according to the, to one person. And, you know, the response was that she was going to call another police officer who was black and she was going to have him come in and talk to the student. So I thought, Okay, so we called two police officers on a boy who's been truant for one day, 
And we have a known drug dealer in our building and we never asked the police to talk to him. So that was such a stark, that was not the correct response. We needed to give him so much more support than we did as an academic team. And Kelly, just to be clear, the other student you're talking about was not a, a person of color. He, he would be perceived as a white student, correct? That's correct. Okay. I just want to make that distinction for anyone who's listening so you can see that there's a clear difference in how school officials are responding. Correct, yes. And, and, and inappropriately, in my opinion. And, um, and of course, you know, I, I tend to see this on a very regular basis, and it's something that I fight on a regular I hate to say that it's so regular, but I, I continue to try to get people to see that we're, we're taking marginalized students and we're not treating them the same. I'm just looking for equity. Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things I really wanted to hit home today was, I mean, one, that it is happening everywhere. This is just one example. And two, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the blog post was that the school, either principal or administrator, had called this young man's mom and she assumed, and that's the baby in the background, assumed <laughs> that the school would have her son's best interests at heart. Um, she didn't know that another student or other students uh, had been responded to differently in previous situations. So she just made the, was under the assumption until you spoke with her that this maybe wasn't the right way to handle the situation. Yeah, that's correct. And it, it's heartbreaking that she trusted the school to um, respond appropriately and didn't question it until I brought it up to her. And, and she apologized and said, I, I can't believe I did that. Well, I'm so sorry. I, I said that you guys could do that. And, and I, you know, continued to apologize back to her like, this is not your fault. You really did assume that we were going to, to, to be equitable in trying to deal with your son, but this is really not the way. He needed something else completely. So let's talk about then moms in general, moms who have kids that are a school age, and I, I'm assuming, you know, middle school and above where some of these issues are taking place. What, what resources do you offer them? What tips do you have for them so that they can be their child's best advocate and maybe they can offer information to their own school officials? That is the best question ever. Um, you know, there's nothing set in place where we, that we offer to parents. And I have to say, I think that it's because of my position and because, um, because of my own lived experiences as a black woman that I consider things very, very differently. So I, I'm looking at something with the lens of cultural competency that sometimes um, white administrators or teachers or educators don't necessarily look through that same lens. So a lot of times what becomes a part of my job is to help parents become the best advocate they can for their child. And that includes opening up dialogue between the school and the home, um, trying to see if parents have some sort of preconceived notions about what they are hoping schools will do with their child or their own experiences when they were in school. And unfortunately, what I'm learning and what I have found in years and years of doing this is that many um, black parents do not want to rock the boat. They don't want to make any waves. And so they don't want to complain because they don't want their child to be um, the target of some sort of retaliation if they stand up for him or her. Um, and so I'm trying to act as a liaison, but you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for the child, but I work in the system. So if parents are looking for someone like you in the system, what type of title are they looking for? 
So my title is a guidance dean. Um, you might also look for a guidance counselor. You would probably also, you know, I would I would seek out any administrator, um, but someone who's got some knowledge of social and emotional health. So a lot of times in school districts, they might have social workers in the building or psychologists, um, and some schools also have parent advocates. Um, in our particular district, many of our parent advocates are actually women of color, and they can sometimes be a bridge for that advocacy. Wonderful. And so let's say your child gets in trouble for the first time, um, and let's use the scenario that the school does not respond appropriately or uh, equitably when, when compared with other kids, uh, maybe white kids who have been in trouble in the past. Step one then um, is, do you recommend going to someone like you first to talk out your options or, or um, voice concern? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think I would first ask, you know, what's the normal protocol for how you would handle the situation or what does the school deem as an appropriate consequence um, the hard part about being in schools is that, you know, if one kid gets in trouble, let's say two students are fighting and um, the other, one parent comes in and they want to know how you discipline the other child, we're not allowed to tell you the discipline the other child got um, because, you, you know, that, that, would, that would betray their confidence if a kid gets in trouble for something. But a lot of times you should have, there should be some sort of, we call it progressive discipline, which is actually in Illinois really getting taken to task with the Senate Bill 100 that will be implemented this fall. Um, can I talk about that for a quick second to Absolutely. let people know? Absolutely. Um, so, because I think this is going to be something that a lot of states will be adopting. So, uh, the voice student voice project in Chicago, uh, mostly made up of Latino and black um, students, youth, um, voiced some concerns about the amount of suspensions and expulsions that students of colors were, were getting because it was so disproportionate. So this bill that they took, and I have to give these students an awful lot of credit for having this great idea and taking it and getting it passed through the house, <laughs> um, which is phenomenal. It's amazing. And yeah, I'm so proud of them. And it's it's called restorative justice. And a lot of restorative justice has to do with this balance of equity and in making sure that when students do something that they have to be disciplined for, that it makes sense. You know, punishments should fit the crime. We've, we've learned, unfortunately, in education that um, zero tolerance policies do not work. They're not, they're completely inequitable. And so we've had to, to do, a, you know, we've had to haul the entire system. But a lot of what we're looking at is how can that student come back into the school if they're suspended, or how can you avoid suspension and have students be responsible for their behaviors, but then giving them a second chance. And so at the middle school level where I work, it's very important that we remember that kids are adolescents. They don't have their, they don't have a full brain yet. Um, I constantly <laughs> tell them that, like, you do not have that front portion of your brain uh, that makes decisions. And, and it's important that we, we forgive them for these mistakes that they're making, so long as they're things that we can, you know, obviously coach them through and counsel them through and say, you know, next time you can make a better choice, what do you think that that would be? You know, I'd also like to approach this from the viewpoint of the ad administration or administrators or people who would, for all accounts and purposes, have made the mistakes of not disciplining equitably or m making the wrong judgment call. Uh, it, I assume it's never too late to say, hey, we made a mistake and we're going to do things differently now or having the wherewithal to apologize or 
preventative measures to make sure it never happens. How can they do that? Um, uh, you know, one way I think is for schools to create some teams for cultural competency. I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, schools are looking more and more diverse, both public, charter, private schools are looking more diverse, and um, yet the teaching population is still 80% white. And um, I think that a lot of what needs to happen is, is for, for people to get training uh, and understanding cultural competency. And then also you have to look at your data. If your data is actually telling you that you have 30% black students in your school but you are disciplining them at 70%, you have a huge disconnect. So every school needs to start by looking at that data. The, and I'm talking, it could be these teams that are culturally competent, but that should include administrators, teachers, parents, and students. Students definitely have to have a voice here um, because sometimes we're doing things punitively to students and we might not know it if it's been a rule that we've had for 15 years and haven't looked at. And so that's addressing something at a local level, individually, per school, looking at data. How can we, and I, I use we, I guess, in a greater context, it's starting here with you and I, but make the conversation national, more global, looking for other resources to, for both education purposes, preventative resources. Is it something people should be talking about on social media, finding other, creating mom groups? I mean, what, what resources could ex- exist in a larger capacity? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, I think social media is a great place to talk about it. I think that's such I, I still think of social media as the great equalizer. You know, I, I get a voice um, just like somebody else does. And um, I, I think that's a wonderful place to talk about it. It's, it's already been talked about. You know, after, after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, there was um, the, the Ferguson syllabus, the hashtag Ferguson syllabus, which was a way for educators and anyone who was starting the school year because it was very, it was near the end of the summer that it happened. And, you know, many of us in education knew we were about to start the school year with students who were probably in experiencing some trauma or experiencing some fear or anxiety. Um, you know, every summer has been the same with um, black people getting shot or killed at, at the hands of police officers who it, it just, we keep seeing it. And social media helps us to obviously see that. Um, but we were really concerned, uh, you know, many of us were concerned that we had kids that were going to need some social and emotional well checks. Like we had to check in with some kids. I, I had a lot of students that the first day of school were already telling me how scared they were and they wanted to talk about it and explore it. And, um, you know, a lot of black students are coming to school in, in need of a lot of emotional help. So that, I think that would be one place. I, w- I would obviously look at um, doing the syllabus. But I think to speak to your question about, you know, nationally, what, what can we do? The the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights gives us a lot of information every single year that I think parents as well as schools should know about. I think sometimes we look at things like that and think, well, that's data for the schools, but the schools are made up of the community. So it's it's really a community issue um, that I think that we, we probably need to share a lot more data. We need to be a whole lot more transparent about the, um, the rules that we have in place in schools. And we also need to be honest about how culturally competent we are or we aren't so that we can get more training. 
so we're talking about this at a, you know a local schoolized level, a national level. Let's let's now since this podcast is really targeted towards moms, even though moms or dads could use the advice that you're you're going to give. What conversations do moms need to be having with their children? And we can talk about it not just, not just in terms of of black moms to black kids, but but white moms to white kids. And you know what, what conversations should we be having? So, you know, the, the thing that we sort of hear, especially on social media, after um, a person of color is killed is, is black parents um, who have the, the talk, capital T, capital W, the, capital T's, um, the talk with their children about how to respond when police are around. And it's a conversation that I think many white moms and dads have never considered until someone has brought it up. To them and and it's just a part of the, the privilege that they sort of carry around like I didn't know you guys had that conversation I mm-hmm. didn't know that was something that you had to be aware of um, you know it could even start as something as um, a, um, oh gosh what's the name oh Pokemon mm-hmm. that just sort of blew up this summer right but um, and there's all these people and kids who are out playing and I have a friend whose son is black she's a, a white adopted mom of a black son and he got picked up by the police the first time he was playing it which was something that you know her friends who have white children had never considered and then that you know the kids that he was with it was a conversation with those kids who were white and then their parents who were white and I think it's a matter of really listening for parents mm-hmm. to say what are the experiences of people of color that I really don't have anything I, I have no background knowledge of this I've never really considered it or you know I think you also have people who are very um, set in saying but I'm, I'm colorblind I don't see color and that's lovely and very a wonderful Pollyanna way to look at life but the world doesn't see it that way you and, know the world- and you know when you talk to a five-year-old which I do on a daily basis they're not right. colorblind either that's absolutely right. And research tells us mm-hmm. that, that children as young as five, mm-hmm. they, they do see color. They absolutely do. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't make any sense for us to like to not talk about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're when you take your five year old to the store, when you when you're looking for a, a doll for your child, um, are we just getting the white dolls or you know, would that be a good time to have a conversation about, hey, doesn't this look like your friend Maya? Like mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like those are just the beginning conversations that you can have that are just awareness because children are, are children as young as five are talking about they, they recognize it, mm-hmm. and kids in middle school, sixth graders. So I'm talking kids who are 11. They are talking about race like people wouldn't believe. I think parents and and people not in the school systems would be very surprised at how much these kids talk about race. And these are the future advocates of their generation. And even though children don't have that, you know, frontal part of their, their decision-making abilities fully developed yet. And that part of their brain, um, there are some very emotionally mature children for their age. And, and we read amazing things about kids all the time who are, are, are already ready to change the world through technology, through apps, through their voice. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I hope to be a parent of a child who is emotionally compassionate and wants to do great things for the world. And, I mean, what what are you encouraging parents to to do to help those children maybe who are even above and beyond where they should be emotionally for that age? That's such a great question because so many kids are there right now, and um, and yet so many kids are still very tender and um, mm-hmm. they they are so compassionate and they are they feel things so much more strongly. I mean, if you remember 
what middle junior high was like or even high school. It was the most emotional time of my life. It was the worst um, time of mine. <laughs> it's terrible. I'll be honest. You feel everything and you feel it like a hundred times more than you ever would. Um, and so I think it, it, it really takes parents being very, very cautious, you know, knowing what your child can handle and knowing how much you're going to talk about. Let them lead the conversation and you'll know when they're done. Um, I always liken it to um, something which is just a thing that parents do. You know, when I was talking to my own children as they were growing up about sex, I knew when they were done. I knew when I was like, don't say one more thing. They're like, <laughs> they're done. They're not going to take anything else in and you might tell them too much. Um, but I think issues of race are just like that. You know, kids can only take in so much at a time. Let them absorb it. Let them make some observations. Let them talk through those things. Um, but, you know, giving them the space to do it and just saying, hey, is there something you want to talk about when it comes to, I see that you're really upset. Um, what, do you, what has happened? And I think allowing kids to have that space to discuss it because a lot of times they're keeping it silent. And I, I will say in my own experience that, Kids of color keep it far more silent than than they should, and it's it's probably emotionally damaging to them to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I had recently asked a question on Facebook um, in the midst of everything that's been going on in our country, and I'm I'm sure I mean I'm already an emotionally sensitive person. I'm sure being postpartum only three months doesn't help the situation right. for me. Right. Um, I cry over spilt milk literally, I think <laughs> right now, uh, but I wanted to create a safe place where people could ask questions of, of one another. And I specifically directed it at people of, of different skin color than your own. I'm not being afraid to ask is and a lot of people put different resources and books and and items that people could read mostly targeted uh, white people towards people of color saying here's where you can learn more about what you could do to either support black lives matter or just learn about the the bias that truly exists in our world today um and i i'll mention a few of them if there's any you're passionate about i encourage you to share also um, but one of them was um, showing up for racial justice, S U R J. Yes. yes. Um, so I have signed up for that, and it's a place where uh, it's organizing um, white people for racial justice. So I know that's one that exists, and then there's a list of books which I can include in um, the podcast recap. But I don't know if there's any uh, resources or organizations you wanted to mention. Uh, the one I usually start with, and, and you know, it's one of those. It's learning about race and dealing with it. If you are not a person of color, there's a learning curve to that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, some people are ready for race 101 and some people are ready to have those really high level critical conversations. But one thing I, I like to start with, if people aren't familiar is Peggy McIntosh, um, who writes about white privilege in something called unpacking the invisible knapsack. And it, it is a way for um, white people to see the privilege that they walk around with on a regular basis and probably don't even recognize. And if you're going to have those very critical um, race conversations, you have to understand, I think, that, that you probably have, you, you've never considered some of these things and it just hasn't occurred to you. And that's okay. It's not a way to make people feel bad. It's just to say, I understand you've never heard or thought about this, but here's what my experience is. And, um, you know, I'll give you a great example. My father lives with me. And when he first moved in um, a couple years ago, we had gone to the grocery store. My mom's white, but my dad's black. 
And my, um, my dad had gone into the grocery store before I did. It was this little tiny boutique grocery store. And I forgot my wallet, so I went back to my car. So I was about 15 feet behind him. And he's 78 years old, you know, and he's, he walks rather slow. And um, I still, you know, when I caught up to him, I noticed that as soon as he had walked in the store, the, um, the checker left her, left her cashier station and started following him. And so I sort of hung back just a little bit to see if what I was seeing was actually right. And then I noticed that she had gotten on her radio to say something. And then a manager came out from the back of the store and started following him too. And I thought, oh my gosh, these people can't see me. And they don't know that I'm watching them absolutely profile my father in a grocery store. He's, he moves, and I, I mentioned that he moves slowly because I thought, what do they think he will do? Do they think he's going to grab a loaf of bread and run out of the store? He's, he's not going to do that. But that is even something as benign as that. Someone who has white privilege has probably never considered that other people get followed around in grocery stores. I, you know, I wouldn't have, and um, I do feel lucky that I have a, a diverse network, both in terms of different cultural backgrounds, age backgrounds. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast so that I can keep learning from people in my network. I constantly want to learn. And I tell my five-year-old son all the time, what is the definition of smart? And he said, it means you're always learning. And I feel yeah. like to yeah. be smart in in cultural ways, in emotional intelligence, we do have to keep learning. And I as painful as that story is for you, I thank you for sharing it because it isn't something that I would readily think of. And I can think of several people in my life who wouldn't think of it either. Um, And I hope that we can continue these conversations and be a network. And by we, I mean, you know, moms, all moms, um, a network and a resource for one another to lift one another up and support each other. And of course, continue to share the real, the funny, the, the crazy things that happen in our everyday lives. But then we can, you know, harness that together for the real and the serious things that happen too. Um, So we can start by changing the world, hopefully one, one child at a time, one event at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Moms are where it's at. You know, I, I, my mom tribe is strong. Uh, moms get things done. I, you know, recently last week on, on Twitter, I was, I was giving a list of things that I was asking for white parents to go back and do at their schools this year. And, and a lot of it was, you know, things we've talked about getting culturally competent, asking your, your school and your school district about curriculum, lesson plans, and textbooks, and, and looking out for those marginalized voices on, on PTOs or boards and, and, you know, parent councils. But also ask for the data. You know, moms, moms are powerful and strong. You, these, these moms can go in that school and just say, we are really concerned about the state of our school. And our school has X population that has X percentage. And we want to make sure that everybody's healthy here. So we're all going to work together on this. And can't you see how powerful that would be? Yeah, I believe it 100%. Yeah. I wanted to thank you so much for joining me today for one of the first editions of Your Mama. Um, I hope that it has a long and robust life. And with people like you, I can only ima- imagine that it will. People can find you on Twitter at Mocha Mama, M-O-C-H-A-M-O-M-M-A. And anything else you want to share where people can find you? Uh, they can find me at my blog, which is kellywickham.com. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly. I hope you all enjoyed listening today. You can reach out to Kelly directly. We can continue the conversation on any social network using the hashtag Your Mama Podcast. I look forward to doing this again with you all soon. And thank you, as always, from the bottom of my heart for listening. <laughs>